Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am here today with Reve Edgepon. You might know her from her social media handle, My Sickled Cells. Reve is now cured of sickle cell. She's living sickle cell free. She underwent stem cell transplant. Woohoo! And uh, is one of the few patients who has uh, undergone this kind of transplant and is now even working in the field. So she's going to talk to us all about that. Reve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, I'm honored. I am honored. Oh. I'm so excited to be here with you today. As, yeah. as am I. It's a total, total honor to have you on the show and I'm excited to Thank dig you. into things. <laughs> so let's go back in time a little bit because you're right. very well now, but yeah. I'm wondering uh, when and how you first found out that you had sickle cell and how hey. life was before this hey. huge change that you've undergone and, and tell us all about the stem cells and everything. Okay, so let's go all the way all back. back. <laughs> way back. Um, so uh, sickle cell disease, because it is a genetic condition, I was born with it. Um, I was originally diagnosed, I think, around the age of two. And honestly, my upbringing was pretty normal. Like My elementary life was normal. My family tried really hard to kind of give me a normal life and not make me feel different. Um, especially my sister always wanted me to never feel like I had to live with limits or anything like that. So in elementary, I had no idea. I knew that there might be something because I was always in the hospital. I always was having to take so many medications around the clock, but I didn't really understand exactly what it was or why this was happening. Honestly, and you, you mentioned you were diagnosed mm-hmm. at two. Is that something like, did both your parents know that they had sickle cell traits and to um, look I, out for that with you? Or they, you started experiencing pain or something? 
Yeah, so I guess I was very colicky at the time. I was very sad. <laughs> I was a smiley baby, but definitely when I became colicky, I was colicky. I was crying all the time. They would go through the regular checks. They're like, this kid is fed. She has slept. She has been diapered. What is wrong with her, <laughs> essentially? Um, my dad has a brother that has sickle cell disease, so I know he knew he had it in his family, so he had he knew he had a trait. But my mom, I don't believe she was aware at the time that she did have trait because um, I have two older siblings, and they both are well. And so wow. I think it came as a little bit of a surprise. And so mm-hmm. eventually um, took me to the hospital and they had run some tests and I eventually was officially diagnosed and I got the, the stamp <laughs> that I had yes. sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. So then you started taking medication at a young age to manage mm-hmm. the symptoms. Yeah, kind of right off the right off the hop. I don't even remember exactly everything that I was saying because my parents were kind of managing that for me, but I do remember lots of antibiotics, definitely. Um, and of course, just the regular vitamins. There was nothing at that time that was like any aggressive medication. And so I didn't really know what was going on. I honestly, I would go out for like go out during recess. I remember this vividly and like maybe like grade four or five and like run around with everyone else. And then, you know, the teacher gets you to line up. I remember lining up and feeling so winded and just exhausted, gasping for air, burning chest. My body was in so much pain. And I honestly looked around and I thought every other kid was experiencing the same thing from sure. recess. Like, oh, must be just as exhausted. I'm like, clearly I was clueless. <laughs> But um, I think it's so hard to know at that young age, too, because it's like Mm -hmm. we haven't had enough experience of our bodies to understand that other people's bodies are different. Like we're barely aware of like boy parts and girl parts at that point. (laughs) Yeah, I was not aware of anything. I was like, we are all the same. I didn't know. I mean, gender's a construct. (laughs) Exactly. I had no idea. And so it was in junior high, actually, that my sister really was encouraging me to learn more about um, my condition because, you know, in elementary, the teachers are a little bit more involved. They know you a bit more, but in junior high, you're kind of going and rotating between teachers and classes and things like that. And you're a little bit more independent. And so she was saying, you know, it's very important for you to start learning so you can manage, figure it out. And so I remember my family telling you the name and it was sickle cell, sickle cell disease. So I went, typed it into the Google search bar. And to my surprise, I remember I was just, I just cried because the first thing that came up was it said the life expectancy was 14 at the time. Oh my God, that must've been really scary. I was terrified. I was 12 years old at the time. I just remember sitting on the computer, just crying, crying. Also, that's not accurate. Let's just say that like that first article that popped up for you, not the norm. (laughs) No, that's one like, that is not accurate. They might've been I don't, I don't, also I was a kid, so I didn't look at the credibility. I didn't look at when, if it could have been written in like 1990, I had no idea. I just saw 14 years and I remember being like, oh my gosh, I remember telling my sister that I was like, well, I'm going to have to make a bucket list then because if I only have a few years left to live, I'm getting everything done. Yeah. I finally kind of laughed at it, but like I seriously made this bucket list and I accomplished what I needed to do. Wow. When 14 came, I was probably like, oh, we're still going? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, and like coming from, you know, a very um, Christian household, I found it very, my relationship with God during that time was quite rocky, to be honest. So I'm like, I'm going to church every Sunday. You know, I'm so confused. I'm like a loving God. Yeah. And like, I'm doing everything right. So why Mm -hmm. should this be heaped upon me? Yeah. Yes. And I always felt like a very straight edge kid. And so I'm like, I don't feel like I caused that much trouble. My parents might say something else. I don't know. That bucket list, it depends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It depends 
it was on the bucket list. No, yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of just like, it, it was really, it was tough. It was really mm. tough mentally. And I didn't fully understand or grasp everything. But, you know, once I started learning a little bit more about it, then I kind of was like, okay, so I can understand what these things called triggers are. So there's different things that you can um, do or like different circumstances that can actually cause your body to change your regular red blood cells into these sickle cells. And those sickle cells, they're rigid, sticky, they get stuck together and they cause blockages. So it's like the more of those you have in your body, the more likely you are to run into problems. And so I started finding out that I'm like, oh, okay, so extreme temperatures, if it's very hot or very cold, you know, these are things I need to be aware of. So and you live in I'm Canada, so out. that's a thing over there. So it's like, I needed to learn how to bundle up and be smart when all mm-hmm. the other, you know, kids wanted to take their jacket off outside. I had to be smart and understand that I can't do that or even overexertion, mm-hmm. understanding that, okay, yes, you can participate um, in gym class. Yes, you can go for bike rides, but then I had to kind of learn my limits and it did take it did take some time to kind of figure that out. Cause also you're in junior high, you might know your limit, but you don't want to follow your limit. You want to be cool. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you want to be cool. And so things like that, I tried my best to kind of avoid um, as I learned a little bit more about the disease and then also learning that things like hydration, like drinking lots of water is going to help you. It's going to, mm-hmm. I didn't really understand why my parents was, were pushing water on me. Like, from the beginning, mm-hmm. I didn't really understand why. But then as I started to understand the rationale that I'm like, oh, okay, the more water I have, the easier it is for the blood cells to flow through. When you're dehydrated, it does the opposite. And mm-hmm. just understanding that, okay, I need to carry my water bottle with me all the time. If I have, if I know I have a stressful day coming up, I need to take the steps to relax either the day before or know I can relax the day after. I always had medication on hand when I went Pretty much anywhere. I always had pain medication. My friends could probably like all through school could attest to this. Rebe always had her water bottle and a bag of pills. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it's know. like, it's us spoonies are the best ones to get lost with. Cause we always have snacks too. Oh, oh yes. Cause you can't, prepared. you can't go hungry. No, you can't. You never, <laughs> you never know what's coming next. Yeah. Oh man. And so that's kind of what I did to I guess, try and control my health and manage as much as I could. Were there blood infusions at that point or no? At that point, no. Um, So this is all through like, so elementary, uh, junior high, I kind of was starting to learn more. And then it was in high school when eventually I was started on a medication called hydroxyurea. And Mm -hmm. so this um, acts by increasing the hemoglobin F you have in your body. And hemoglobin F is protective because it doesn't um, sickle. And so you're less likely to have sickle cell crises with it. It keeps patients out of hospital it's it's like honestly a wonder drug. A lot of patients wow. who have sickle cell disease are on this medication, um, and I myself was. It was good. It did cause me. Um, I did have some side effects. I had really bad stomach pain mm. with it. Um, it's actually a low dose chemotherapy agent. Um, and it's oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna come back to the chemotherapy when we get to your stem cell uh, transplant yes. as well. But I mean, it's interesting because also like everyone has different reactions to different medications. So in many ways, this is a wonder drug, but there may be these negative side effects and you happen to experience one. Yeah. And that one, that one was tough for me. Um, and you know, I would, they would, they suggested, okay, don't take the medication in the morning, take it in the evening rather than, but then it was keeping me up at night. And Mm. so it was, it was tough. Um, 
I think the stomach pain was probably the worst, but I just continued to push through it anyways. But to be honest, I only lasted a few years on that medication because it wasn't really showing an abundance of effect. I still was in and out of the hospital like clockwork, regardless of taking it very diligently, regardless of it killing my stomach. Mm. And so it was then that I was actually started on the red cell exchange program. And so what that essentially is, you it's like a high-powered blood transfusion. So rather than usually when you go into the hospital with sickle cell crises, they'll just give you one bag. But this is actually a scheduled appointment where you go in. I was going in every eight weeks. They attach you to this very high-powered machine and they're exchanging your blood. So you're getting, I was getting eight bags of donor blood wow. at the time. That's a lot. And they're Oh, so much. And they were withdrawing the same volume from my body simultaneously. Wow. And they do this through a very large bore um, needle. And so, so you have to go to the OR before. It's such a process. I was getting mm. <laughs> a line into my femoral vein every eight weeks. It was quite painful. They do this awake, by the way. You are yeah. not sedated for this line insertion. And then they take you... Um, to this, this unit and they'll do this procedure. It's very high powered though. So the actual apheresis, they call it, or red cell exchange procedure only takes, I think it's about two and a half hours that you're oh, hooked wow. up, which is like remarkable. That's very yeah. quick. Yeah. Yeah. And then after they pull the line, apply pressure, and then you'll be sent to um, the recovery room for three hours because it's, um, they're going into your femoral vein. They want to ensure that it clots over before you even stand up. Like you're left laying down for so many hours until you can get up and then ensure that it's not going to blow. And then you can go home because they don't want such a large vessel, um, Mm. potentially. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, a lot about this having experienced it, but you also Mm -hmm. are a registered nurse. So it's Mm -hmm. very interesting because I, I also wonder if around this time in high school, when you started on the the red cell exchange program whether that also inspired you to go into medicine yeah definitely my experiences with my health have pushed me into medicine um Mm -hmm. there was a few other random things I wanted to do before I'm like I'm really interested in design so I thought about that but honestly I found that all my hospitalizations the nurses just made the biggest difference for me and that's like, what I, everyone says. It's always yes. the nurses. Yeah. Yes. I, I wanted to be a doctor at some point, but I still love doctors. They're amazing. But really mm. and truly, I do vividly have strong memories of, you know, let's say it's after nine o'clock and your parents have to go home and you're left alone in this pediatric unit and having that one nurse who just like goes above and beyond and they'll mm. do whatever they can, whether it's okay. I know they humanize the experience. Yes. Rather than, you know, I don't mind asking for things as well, but sometimes it's nice when, before you even have a chance to open your mouth, they're like, oh, Renee, I remember you love your warm blankets. Let me bring this. Or they'll even, the ones that would sit down with you for a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. they're doing your vitals and stuff, but they see you're upset and they'll just sit. And just Mm -hmm. five minutes is all it takes of human connection when you feel so alone and you feel so scared. Um, And it's crazy that this whole decision to start me on red cell exchange happened to occur when both of my parents had traveled. And so it was like my sister. um, So it's just myself, my brother, my sister here. And my sister kind of was the one who had to make, make a big decision because she at that point was my guardian. And so I was really scared and my parents were like, we're flying back right now. And we're like, you know, it's fine. We can figure it out. But there was the specific nurse who, took so much time and she went downstairs. She showed me the exact line they're going to use for the insertion. She Mm. showed me, she explained the whole process. She showed me everything that I could 
possibly ask for just so I could understand the procedure better and really understand what I was going into. And mm. it's crazy because my first red cell exchange actually happened uh, three days before. No, I think it was two days. Like it was right before I started nursing school. Wow. My first one was like, I had already been accepted and I was, I think it was the anticipation and the stress of mm-hmm. starting this big program that really triggered a bad sickle cell crisis over that winter break. And then I started this new procedure and I was like, oh my goodness, things are changing so fast. What's happening here? Yeah. But, Which is often also what happens okay. among we chronic illness patients is that like, mm-hmm. it's that going to university is that mm-hmm. line where life stops being the same rhythm, this predictable Mm -hmm. rhythm where you're being taken care of by your family, what have you, and you're on your own in a new way. And Mm -hmm. in many cases, we are also encouraged to overwork and undersleep Mm -hmm. and all this kind of thing, you know, these kind of Mm -hmm. crash worthy behaviors that that we often undergo in university. So it's very interesting that it was around that time that Mm -hmm. you were transitioning into this program and going yes. into nursing school. Really fascinating. Yes. Oh, it was it was a crazy time. I'm just so happy that I was able to pull through. And I ended up being on the Red Cell Exchange program for um, a total of seven years. Wow. I was doing the same. It was, I'm just like, when I look back, I'm like, how did I manage this? Because I was doing it all through nursing school. I remember I would try and schedule it. Like I'd have to miss some days of school, unfortunately, but it is what it is. But I'd, they would laugh at me. The nurse was like, wow, you are dedicated because I'd bring my books. I'd bring my school mm. books and study while I was hooked up because I'm like, well, that's literally a full day. I need yeah. to cram as much Plus, as I what can. better way to be absorbing information about the medical field than while you're in the doctor's office? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And also the nurses were so nice that took care of me. I love them all. All these AFRIS mm. nurses are amazing because they would even help me. They would provide me with like specific examples about their own life. It was it was really nice. But so probably I think it was about five years after five years of being on this program then my femoral veins actually completely scarred over and they no longer were able to get a line and it became extremely painful because everyone knows like trying to push anything through scar tissue is like next to impossible and incredibly painful um and so then I was approached with the idea to get an um I guess it's a double lumen vortex and so it's essentially like an IVAD same idea as like an IVAD, a port that just sits on your chest. So this one um, was going to be buried into my ch- into my breast kind of thing there, and they would use that. And so they'd have so to sort of like a it. central line. Yeah, mm. yeah, they'd have to access through my skin, and so and it would just stay in until forever until pretty much it stopped working. And so then for the second, I guess the next two years, I was using that, which was nice though because it made my days a lot quicker. I didn't have to go to the OR anymore um, to do all that pre-work. You literally just showed up to the apheresis unit. They would, you put your numbing cream on first, of course, and then they would um, poke you and do everything. So you'd have your regular two and a half hour procedure. And then after that, there was only about like a 10 minute waiting time. You didn't have to wait for anything to clot over because the port was, once you take the everything out, the valves are closed. (laughs) It's really interesting to me because this whole fail first 
mentality mm-hmm. that we have around medicine that like yes. you have to go through the more painful, more invasive mm-hmm. experience yes. of, of letting your femoral vein then scar over. Like what if you need access to that in the future too? And then yeah. you're given this port. So it's interesting to me that like that's never, that wasn't offered as the first option, which probably yes. would have been a lot more comfortable for you probably because it's an invasive procedure to get it installed, I guess, you know, but yes. it's interesting yeah. that like, in a way that was a better way to go anyway. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm like that that ended up being the best way to go. It is interesting because I do wonder though, uh, like as wonderful as this port was, if they had tried to offer it to me when I was freshly going into university, I feel like there was, there would be a fear surrounding it um, just because of the body image that came along as I got yeah. older and matured a little bit. Yeah. I realized that it, it is what it is and it's, that's it's true. low enough that you don't always see it, but you definitely, if I wear a tank top, it's very visible. It's always a conversation starter. People are like, hey, what's that? What happened to you here? Well, and that's another, a whole another can of worms because people think they have the right to ask questions like that. Well, I've been asked by random people. Like I remember yeah. going on a trip with some friends and like a random person actually asked like, what happened to you? Did you get like, like did you get into a bar fight? And I was like, oh my God. Huh? How do I look like I get into bar, bar fights? fights? <laughs> I was like, sure, not quite. But whatever you say, I just like left it alone. But definitely people always feel you like need to start saying way. you should see the other guy. <laughs> I should. <laughs> you should see the other guy. You should yeah. see right him. This is you need that one liner answer to those things, which <laughs> I know like some of us also go through things like that. We're like, I mean, Alana Jacqueline, who's been on the show, she made like a business card to hand to people to be like, oh. I see you looking. Here's what's going on. I mean, a lot of us wow. go through that where we're like, we need to have a canned response because we get asked yes. this question so often. So it's interesting, you know, mm-hmm. going through I that. I never came up with one. And now I really, I feel like a few people have told me, like my sister probably told me, just come up with a response, but I just never thought about it. Well, you had a lifetime. <laughs> To live like why should you be taking the extra time to answer other people's questions that aren't any of their business anyway that's the other side of that argument you know? I, exactly that's the other side of the coin mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so this was then seven years you did the five years with the femoral vein the two years with the port mm-hmm. and then what happened at this point you graduated nursing school I presume as well yes yeah I graduated nursing school I was working at that time I was working full-time in the NICU and I was loving every second of it I, I would finish my night shift at 7 a.m. and then go straight down to the apheresis unit, get my exchange. I'd sleep during it and then I would go home. Like I just kind of had a system and everything was working well and I felt pretty good also. And I was really proud of myself to be able to work um, shift work full time and not really be feeling any of the effects of it. Mm. You know, even and not be in crisis. Yeah. I'm like most people, you know, would be struggling with that anyways, because nights are hard, but it was just crazy that my body, like red cell exchange really and truly did change my life in the sense that I had the opportunity to finally feel normal. I could actually run. I could go to the gym. I could do all those things. Yes. You still have to be careful. Um, you don't want to overexert yourself, but just getting that new, the fresh blood, you actually did feel very renewed. But then that feeling faded off um, after a while. So because I was on it for so long, I think after a while, your body gets used to it. Your body, my body still was producing so much sickle hemoglobin. No matter how often they did this, and I think they actually decreased my um, intervals. So rather than going eight weeks, or let's try seven weeks, or let's try six weeks kind of thing to see if maybe that helped. But I was finding 
probably just a few weeks after, even at the, by the four week mark after my exchange, I was already starting to feel pain. Like I could feel that my bones were aching. I was, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And it just got progressively worse. And then it, it became hospitalizations. So then it turned into, okay, I'm on this treatment. This is like the top notch, highest degree of treatment you can get for sickle cell. And I'm on it. And then like, what is going on right now? And I'm still in the hospital. So my doctor then suggested, okay, he's like, I know you don't like hydroxyurea and it didn't work, but let's bring it back. And maybe in conjunction with this, you'll be better. And so I was like, you know what? I'll try anything at this point. Tried it and still wasn't really giving, providing the relief maybe he had expected at the time. And then on top of that, then I started um, having other issues related to the amount of blood I was being exposed to. And because blood has a lot of iron in it. And so red blood cells, sorry, I have a lot of iron. And so I was getting a lot of issues related to iron overload. So then yeah, that can, those can on, often be digestion issues. Yes. For so those many who are wondering, things. like, well, what would those be? Mm, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Definitely. It was a little bit of everything. Mm. I also was experiencing, well, they were finding on all of my diagnostic imaging that I was starting to get buildup of iron in my organs. And they're like, uh, mm. this is not a good thing. So they started me on um, another medication, iron, um, iron chelator, they call it. And so this medication will decrease the amount of iron in your body. Also, this medication, it also does um, destroy your stomach. So there's just, a, there's a lot of things And that's happening. a lot of, it's a lot of like mixed medications with mm-hmm. side effects. And like, this isn't unusual, you know, for someone to be on multiple medications and to be dealing with multiple potential side effects. But, yes. you know, when those side effects start really mm-hmm. kicking in as, you know, look, they don't with everyone, but obviously that was happening with you. It's like, then yes. what choice are you left with when your quality of life is going to suffer if you continue on this life-saving treatment? Yeah, it was, it was tough. Cause I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm on the highest degree of medication and treatment and I'm still not feeling well. So there was a time period, I think I was in the hospital about five times in like seven months. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I am taking so much. Mm -hmm. They're doing the best. And so I think it was at that point, um, I kind of started hearing a little bit about transplant. I started doing my research and my family was doing their research as well. Um, And my sister actually had done a lot of work on trying to figure out, she was my biggest advocate, is always doing so much work in the background and behind the scenes to make sure that I was well and doing whatever she could to do so. And I remember there was, I found out that they were doing transplant for sickle cell in Calgary, and, which is only three, three, um, wait, three hours away. And this mm-hmm. is also like, this is a relatively new treatment, but what we're yeah. seeing, because it's being offered to the more severe cases of sickle cell at this stage, yeah. what we're seeing is th- amazing results. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. And so I was like, I got to get my hands on that. How do I qualify? What do I need to do? And I was very deflated and very discouraged when I found out that they were only doing children at the time and they were not interested in expanding to adults. At the time, I was 24, 25. Mm. And I was like, this is, I'm like, I'm barely an adult. <laughs> that's, why right. I, that's why I pitched it to my doctor. I'm like, I'm barely an adult right now. Okay, that's interesting probably- that they were just doing children. I wonder if it's because mm. they heal faster, but that's fascinating. Yeah. 
it's partially that that kids have better bounce back and also mm-hmm. they have better outcomes because when you do when you irradiate someone and you you give them chemo and all that at a younger age their likelihood of having complications is less than when mm-hmm. you have someone who's older and more rickety and broken down in different right. ways already. well speaking of which can you give our listeners a little bit of background now because they're probably going wait you said stem cells now you're talking about chemo you know um for yes. how how that works because it's a process of undergoing chemo in order to take on the stem cells, correct? Yes, exactly. So the process of um, bone marrow or stem cell transplants kind of used interchangeably um, is essentially you, you get a certain amount, depending on what protocol it is, maybe it's, mine was five days of chemotherapy. And some people's can be up to maybe, I don't know, 10 to 14 days, depending on what whatever they're getting. I'm not 100%. So this is a relatively short period of of chemo because if you're treating for cancer for example you're going back for a series of weeks of treatment so this is very different yes and so it's just kind of you'd be admitted to the hospital you get your my protocol is five days of chemotherapy and then i had one day of total body irradiation and so a lot of people know about radiation a lot of people know you know with certain cancers maybe you get radiation in a specific area but this was like head to toe your whole body was getting fried, everything was getting kind of killed on the way. And so that pretty much just provides a fresh um, or a clean slate for these stem cells to kind of come into your body and find a home within your bone marrow. It just completely gets rid of everything that's there or as much as they can. They basically gave you a restart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they so, pretty much do. So you mentioned that you didn't qualify initially for the program. So how did you eventually end up qualifying yeah. and getting the treatment? So my sister went and she actually contacted um, a hospital in the States that was doing it and they were willing to actually take on um, me as a patient because it was under a study and because it was also under study and research, I would even be able to get some funding from them to go because it's research and I was like, oh, perfect. And Which so, makes a difference because uh, in Canada, your healthcare is subsidized. So you're yes. generally not paying nearly as much as you do in the States. So that's really wonderful. No. Yeah, I definitely, I wouldn't be able to afford it in the States. And so um, that, as I started collecting a lot of information, because they needed all of my medical records and everything. So I went through a process of trying to collect all of that. And in this process, my hematologist actually caught wind of what mischief I was up to. And he had brought me into the clinic because he was like, what is going on? What are you doing? And I said, well, if you guys can't do it, I'm going to get one, get a transplant elsewhere. And he was very opposed to the idea, very much like he's at that point, he's already been my doctor for at least six years. So he knew me very well. Um, We had a very close relationship. And I think there was a part of him that was like, nope, you're a great patient. I don't want to lose this patient. Like I want you to Well, stay. and this is still a very experimental treatment at this stage too. Yes. He's like, you especially not for your friend. age group. Yeah. Yes. And so he was not willing to have me as, um, I guess, I don't know. I wouldn't say scapegoat or anything, but he didn't want me to be one of the first. And so he was just kind of like, maybe not the best idea, but with persistence and with, he saw how serious I was. And he saw that whether they were going to help me or not, I was going to do it. He's like, you know what, let me just reach out to the people in Calgary, see what we can do. And he actually, he sent the referral to the adult team in Calgary um, who just, they do oncology bone marrow transplants. And so I would be their first sickle cell adult to do. And they accepted me. I went down to Calgary. Yeah, they provided wow. me with a whole bunch of information. And then they're like, Kate, we'll make your decision now that you know all the Those facts. Those poor you know suckers back in the US. <laughs> You ended up, so you ended up getting it all done at home. That's great though. 
exactly yeah I ended up getting it all done here and so that and when was, was that what happened. year was that that was um 2017 so not that long ago and this is still a treatment it still continues on um mm-hmm. but still a very small percentage of people living with sickle cell are offered this treatment again it's like the really extreme cases it's actually tiny mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. so you were very lucky that you had your sister as an advocate and your mm-hmm. own knowledge, you know, being inside the medical mm-hmm. system, that you were able to do your own research, know what mm-hmm. was viable information, mm-hmm. and then also be persistent about yes. getting it done. Yes, persistence was key because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, um, they don't always have confidence in the information that they know. And so I, because I knew what was out there and my sister knew it was out there, I knew it was available. I knew it could be done. And so I was able to push because sometimes you can't push when you don't know what you're pushing for. Right. And so very well said. Yeah. (laughs) Why? Thank you. But no, Mm -hmm. honestly, I do feel like you can't just be like, oh, I need some treatment. You have to be like, this is treatment. This can be, I can do this or, you know, it can be made available this way. This is how it's feasible. You have to come with all of the information as well. And so I honestly feel like I am so blessed that I am, you know, I went through nursing school and I was already working in the medical professional or profession that I was interested in knowing more about sickle cell disease on my own. And so Mm -hmm. I I was just constantly trying to keep up with what are the new meds? What is this? What is that? So I was able to then eventually advocate for myself and now advocate for others. (laughs) Yeah. Which we're going to get into as well. Mm -hmm. So you've now been three years sickle cell free. Yeah. Well, two years was my two years was, um, November. It would have been November. And so I'm three years in November. (laughs) In November, 2020, you'll be three years, which is an incredible anniversary to be celebrating. Mm -hmm. And as you told us, you went through a fairly short term process to get the the stem cells um, placed. I mean, I know certainly on your social media feed, you've posted photos of yourself during treatment and like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't easy. It doesn't look like it was easy, but here you are on the other side and testing free. Honestly, honestly, I thank God for that. The day that I actually found out that I was a sickle cell free was just the most amazing day ever because November 9th, 2017 was my actual transplant date where I got my sister's cells, but it took up until... It was and it was your... Oh, it was your sister who donated? Yeah. My sister How gorgeous being, is that? I'm telling you. It's actually, it's interesting how this all happened because they pretty much told me it's, you can't go forward with transplant until you have a match. And with sickle cells, because they're like, this is so experimental and so risky, they were only going to do family matches. Mm. Um, They tested my brother and he was a no match and we're closer in age. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, my sister's 11 years older than me. And so I was pretty much like, well, whatever, it's not going to work. And she ended up being a 10 out of 10, like perfect match, which is crazy because they say it's only, you have a 25% chance that I think it's like a 25% chance that you'll actually have a match in your family, but then it's a 14% chance that that match will not have sickle cells. So it's amazing that she was a match and she doesn't have the disease or anything like that. So she was able to donate. It's crazy how it came Mm. around full, full circle that way. And so pretty much through the months as I was, you know, healing and recovering from transplant still in Calgary. Um, they tested my hemoglobin S every single 
week or every other week, whatever it was. And I remember going into transplant, I had, I was 35% hemoglobin S or sickled hemoglobin. And then I was so nice to watch over the weeks that it decreased from like, I think it was eight, 18% to 8%. And then all of a sudden it was at a 4%. And I was like, well, I'll take my 4%. And then eventually they decided to do um, another test. And this one was just kind of like a yes or no. And they tested me for sickle cells and it came back not present. And I was, this was yeah, January 25th, um, 2018. And I was just in tears. I think I was in shock for a full 24 hours. I was like, is this real? Are you sure this is my test? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because that's the other thing is that you've spent your entire life up to this point being chronically ill. So suddenly being told yes. you're just not anymore is yeah. quite a revelation, I'm sure. It didn't really, it didn't really add up or make sense to me. I, it took me a long time to even accept it because I was afraid to accept it. And then, yeah, I felt that if I actually accepted it, then what if by chance there was a mistake? Because they were like, oh, well, you know, up until the two-year point, you never really know. It's potential that the sickle cells could resurface. And so I was kind of a little bit nervous to be too excited. But I was like, you know what? Let me enjoy this. Let me just enjoy this moment. And then that moment became a year of a sickle cell free then it became two years sickle cell free and at this point I'm like all right sickle cells is done and so but the interesting thing about transplant I think a lot of people forget is that although you've had a transplant so it's like you're I feel like you exchange chronic illnesses a lesser one now of course but I'm no longer a sickle cell disease patient but now I've become a transplant patient which opens doors to so many other issues that you could potentially run into I've been very very fortunate um that I haven't, I have had side effects issues, but not in abundance, nothing that has completely derailed, um, you know, my health, but it's, it's crazy. It is really crazy. I'm just happy right now yeah. to sit here and say, I'm free. You're free of sickle. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's interesting too, because there's the mental health component there too, right? Where mm-hmm. there's always going to be that underlying anxiety of yes, yeah. but, um, you know, mm-hmm wondering when the other shoe is going to drop as you, as you've described, you know, so it's, it's interesting, like you are dealing with potential side effects, the fear of those side effects and, and everything that comes with living a life of chronic illness and suddenly being told you're not chronically ill anymore. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a weird transition, I bet. Very weird. I did find it like mentally, it's kind of, it's interesting that you pick up on that because no one picks up on that. Mm. Like no one really picks up on how, it's interesting. I've wanted to be free of sickle cells forever. I wanted to be cured. But then the moment you are, it's actually like an identity crisis, which mm-hmm. sounds crazy. It doesn't at I, all. I've identified myself with sickle cell disease my whole life. And all of a yeah. sudden I'm like, okay, so I don't have that. Then I'm like, then I was it's very- It's the same. Thinking. It's like a reverse grieving process, it sounds like, because mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of us who live able-bodied up to a certain point and then get a diagnosis of a chronic illness when we're teenagers or adults. Yeah. Unlike you, I mean, you were living with this diagnosis since you were a little kid. So for you, as you say, mm-hmm. your whole identity, your entire life up to that point had been in the world of sickle cell. But like for someone like me, for example, who was completely able-bodied and then suddenly completely disabled, oh, we all go, we go through a grieving process where we have to grieve our former selves. And I think you, it sounds like you've undergone the same kind of grieving process, but in going backwards, right? But like going mm. back to a more able-bodied, yes. but also, as you say, being aware of managing the side effects of transplant. Yes, yes. I feel like I definitely, 
I had to, it, it was weird. I had to really adjust to it. Cause I almost, there was a point that I didn't really feel like I fit in anywhere mm. because I'm like, I'm not quote unquote normal. I have been through so much. My experiences don't match anyone else, but it's like, technically I am normal, mm. but then it's like, and I didn't feel like I identified with the sickle cell community anymore. Sure. Um, because a lot of them were of course very excited they're like great this is awesome but because stem cell transplant is not available to everyone there was also this like a little bit of awkwardness associated mm-hmm. with having this treatment and being successful and standing here today that a lot of people they look up to you but they're like man I have no siblings mm-hmm. how do I get that and then it makes you feel like oh man I'm like what can I do to help these people and I think that's why advocacy became so important to me because I was mm-hmm. like I will not allow this blessing to stop here I'll yeah. find a way to either share my story if it's just for hope so people realize that there was no way for me but there you know God made a way there was a way that was made eventually mm-hmm. um you know just whatever I can do to kind of make it easier for those people but it was tough and even in the terms of being post transplant I didn't fully fall into the normal transplant population either So it was a very awkward spot that I'm like, I would still go to my groups. They always had, um, I think it was like a stem cell transplant or no, not stem cell transplant specific. Sorry. It was a cancer survivors clinic, but I was invited to it because of, I was getting treatments where I was getting treatment. So I was always invited. I mingled with a lot of people, a lot of oncology patients, and it's crazy. We have similar experiences. We've gone through the exact same treatment, but I still felt like it's a bit different with cancer because a lot of them were, as you said, maybe they were able-bodied and healthy before, and then they're going through this grieving their old life. And I'm mm. kind of like, this has been my life. Yeah. <laughs> this has kind of been my life. And it's like, for me, transplant was a quote unquote choice. For them, transplant was their like only, only option. option. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. very well observed. I- I'm wondering also, I mean, you've mentioned your sister a few times and mm-hmm. your, your entire family really, um, mm-hmm. and your own journey to becoming your own advocate, but how has your sister's presence, the fact that she was able to donate stem cells for you, um, which is not an easy, I mean, that's a painful process. So she yeah. must really love you. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, that your sister was able to donate for you and has helped you along this entire journey, not only of self-acceptance over the many years that you were living with sickle cell actively, but also in terms of helping you research and, and push to get the stem cell transplant. Yes. Has it deepened your relationship with her because of all of that? Yes, definitely. I, if anyone knows Stephanie and I, we already are, we already were very close. She was like my second mom. She was always there for me. And she was, she's honestly been an advocate for me in so many ways, advocate in terms of like with physicians and in the medical system when I went to the emergency, but also an advocate, even with my own family, even helping my family understand, oh, this is what Reve is experiencing, like being able to translate without me even saying a lot of times, like how I am feeling and what it must be like kind of thing has been really, really helpful. And it really has deepened our relationship. It makes me feel like I have this person who I know is always going to have my back and is always going to be there for me. And, you know, the way she's treated me has kind of made me want to be that for other people because not everyone is going to have a Stephanie in their life that is going to be able to push for them, advocate for them, and even pick them up when they fall. Pick them up when, you know, you sometimes... Mm. There was times when she was advocating for me and I didn't even want to advocate for myself. I was done. I was like, forget it. I have this disease. I'm going to be sad for the rest of my life. I'm going to be in pain. But mm. she was like, no, you're not. This is what we're going to do. Get like, pick it up. Let's move forward. And so I want to be that person 
for other people who don't necessarily have someone who's doing that for them, that voice to kind of be like, it's going to be okay. There are options out there. Don't give Mm -hmm. up just yet. Because honestly, when I found Transplant, I was probably at like rock bottom. I was ready to give up at that point. I was tired of these meds. I'm tired of like nothing changing. And so I'm happy that I had someone who kept pushing, kept pushing. Absolutely. Well, why don't we dig more into your advocacy work? Can you talk to us about um, how you've been raising awareness of sickle cell disease and stem cell transplant and also about like these patients that you're working with now um, and how you've ended up helping other people who are living the way you once lived? Yes. Okay. So it started actually with before transplant. Um, When I found out that this could be a possibility, I started a YouTube channel. Um, And I started this YouTube channel, honestly, because I was like, maybe someone will want to know, because I felt like there was no information for me out there. When I was trying to figure out what am I actually going to go through, there was nothing. You could find a lot of oncology resources, which are still great and very helpful, but they didn't quite pertain to the exact protocol I was going to go through, the exact um, experience that maybe a sickle cell patient would have to go through. And so I found it a little bit frustrating. So I said, okay, let me at least start to track my journey a little bit, and then maybe it will be helpful for someone else. And also for my family that was um, abroad and also like friends that were going to be back home that wanted to know and I couldn't necessarily video chat with each of them. I started creating these videos over and over and kind of documenting every step of the way during transplant and people started enjoying them more and more. And I was like, hmm, maybe I should start an Instagram. And then I branched off and started Instagram. And with that, actually, a lot of people were finding my my posts very um, inspirational or very uplifting or very helpful. And I was then, re- I was shocked. I was like, what, my story? I'm like, I haven't done anything, but sure. And so I, it kind of just took so, off. I'd say you've way. done more than you give yourself credit for, but Apparently, there you go. Apparently, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but yeah. I really just felt like a regular person just going through a regular treatment. And sharing your story. Time is just, yeah, just sharing just so people knew and people heard more about sickle cells. Um, I also was a member of the Sickle Cell Foundation of Alberta at the time. And so I did raise awareness through that organization as well. But then I think as, um, as the story and as I was videotaping and recording all of this, um, AHS, so that's our, um, I guess our health organization here in Alberta had caught wind of all of this and they actually wanted to document it because they're like, oh, this is cool. So they wanted to document it. And so once that news article came out and the video and all that came out, this is probably six months after transplant, then people were really, really interested in hearing more about my story. And so I was being invited to different conferences, different events and different things like that. And I was able to then share my story and inspire others. And it was lovely. It just At first, I felt like I was just kind of like, oh, wow, this is something fun to do. But then I really started to take a liking to it. And I enjoyed making other younger people, especially my big focus is on, I don't know what it is about that like 15 to 18 year old range, but it just hits me so hard (laughs) because that's when you're, you're really trying to figure out who you are. And with a chronic illness, it's so tough to do that. And it's so easy to be down on yourself and to feel terrible, feel like, you know, you're not going to amount to the things you think or things you want to amount to. And so I really focus on trying to inspire and uplift those guys and really just be that voice for them and just remind them that things can get better. And the way modern medicine is changing, things change overnight, honestly. Well, you're a living example of that. 
yeah, things can change, change overnight. And then even now working in this clinic, this has been like the biggest blessing. There are days when I honestly drive to work and I'm crying, just so happy that this is the job I get to do. It sounds like, I sound like all I do is cry, but seriously, just No, but it's, it's a gratitude thing, isn't it? It's like you're yeah. literally working. And I mean, tell the listeners about your work because it is exactly yeah. what you were born to do. And that's, that's honestly how I feel. I'm like, how did I end up here? So I'm working um, at a pediatric hematology clinic, which I just love so, so much. It's amazing. I love working with sickle cell disease patients. It's so nice to be able to. And a lot of times I actually don't share my experience. So a lot of my patients, they don't know that I have the disease. Only a few. Slowly I tell people um, when I find, feel that the time is right and a family maybe really, really needs some support and I could provide it. Or if someone asks, they want to speak to someone who's been through this, then I might. But I still kind of I wanted to ensure that they knew I was supporting them before I actually shared all that. And so it's nice yeah. though, because I can still relate to them in certain ways. So they don't really understand how I under, I know exactly how they feel and how I can kind of articulate. Trust your nurses, thing. y'all. Trust your nurses. I know. <laughs> I don't really understand why, but it's because I have all this experience and the families that I actually have shared with, they are just like astounded and so excited and I realized that I think I'm actually going to start telling people more, just being very upfront with it because I find they're so happy and they feel very hopeful because I wish when I was that age, when I was so young, I saw, you know, someone who was, you know, in their late twenties or something like that, working full time as a nurse, doing great things. It would really be so inspiring and make me feel like I could do anything because at the time I only knew one person older than me with sickle cell disease and he was an uncle who lived all the way in California. So I didn't really, you know, I didn't really get to see his day-to-day life and really, I just knew, okay, well, if he's doing well, I'll probably do well. And Absolutely. so it's, just, it's nice just to be able to reach patients and be so close and be mm-hmm. such a cornerstone in their hospital experience. Yeah, absolutely. And what about, I mean, from, you have a view both as a user of the healthcare system and as someone who works within it. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the healthcare system in Canada Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and how it really works for patients and maybe where it Mm -hmm. needs improvement. What's your take on that? So I feel like now that, yes, I have seen it on both sides, so I can see sometimes why it is the way it is, why some things can be frustrating to patients as well. I think it actually works well for patients in the sense that um, of the coverage, that majority of the treatments and medical expenses that you are going to have are going to be covered. And so I've actually in the past looked up how much it costs for a red cell exchange treatment that I mentioned I was getting every eight weeks. It is supposed to be about $2,500 in the States. And I'm like, how? And, and you get it for free. Getting, yes. And I'm getting completely free. And I'm just wondering, like, how are people affording that? And that's not even um, factoring in the nurses. That's not factoring the room, the supplies, the blood products that I... Oh, it, goes up, it goes up to 10 grand without you blinking. And... And I'm just, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have been sustainable. And so that's one thing I'm so grateful and so fortunate that I, I was able to live somewhere like Canada and it was able to have something so life-changing, completely covered. And a lot of people do reach out to me very frequently on social media asking, oh, you know, how much does transplant cost? And I always, sometimes I feel kind of shy because I know they come from a different part of the world where it's not covered and money is not something you can just grab from a tree. And they're like, oh, I would love to have that, but I can't afford. And so that really, 
really breaks my heart to hear that. And I'm like, why can't you all just come here? I know, <laughs> I know. But that's here, exactly but- why so many organizations exist as well. And often people can find funding resources through yes. charitable organizations that are focused on certain disease groups, which can be helpful. But that's that's not always the only answer um, or mm-hmm. the the final answer, as it were. It's It's tough. Yeah, yeah. So like, that's one way that I'm like, I find that the health system works so well here. But definitely, of course, there's always places, um, room for improvement. But like, I honestly think one spot that would be nice if it was improved is kind of the length of time, like the approval process. I find that approval for anything takes very long here. Um, I remember like vividly being younger and even now looking on the internet and finding that, oh, new sickle cell miracle, wonder drug, da, 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 da. And it is not coming over here. The FDA, like they're always like, oh, FDA has approved this in the US, but it's very unlikely. Well, the other side of that is that the FDA has gotten in trouble for approving devices and medications before they've been ready to be approved. <laughs> okay, you know? fair enough. But I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because that this uh, delay with referrals and services seems Mm -hmm. to be the common thread. Um, Whenever I hear people complain about socialized medicine, um, Mm -hmm. the number one complaint is, "Yeah, but you have to wait." You know, and Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting because like sometimes you can wait. You know, if things aren't acute, you can wait, and sometimes three months might suck, but it might not make the difference between life and death. But I I think um, it's really interesting that we need to learn to adjust our perspectives on time. And this idea of healthcare as a human right, which is the way in which you've always lived in Canada, but it's not the Mm -hmm. way that people live in other countries like here in the U.S., yeah, yeah, it's it, it just blows my mind that it's not as accessible in other areas and I really feel for people who are struggling financially like how do you so it's either you go bankrupt or you get cured it's well or just, or the other way tough. around that is to provide medicine and and well-being and health to everyone and then provide mm-hmm. a private option on top of that which I think you yes. guys have in Canada too right like you can opt to buy into additional care that can speed up some of these referrals and things. Yeah, I but, think we're, we're moving there. We're moving in yeah. that direction. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are also not happy about that. <laughs> because sure, like, because oh, it's scary. It means care. maybe medicine will become privatized and it'll get as bad as it is here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I know a lot of people are definitely worried about. But I'm like, honestly... Like, I can wait. If it's going to take a little bit longer for a drug to come through, if it means that it's going to be safe, fine. But definitely, you know, even with transplant, I was kind of like, if it wasn't for me pushing, you know, it wouldn't, there wouldn't have been approval. And I'm like, mm-hmm. not everybody can push though. And not every yeah. situation there, there can be a way made. And so it's like, why can't we think of these things ahead of time rather than, you know, it takes one person. But I guess in a lot of situations for most things, it just takes one person to change yeah. the way things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well said. So you mentioned earlier, you know, that you, you wish that you'd known someone in your day to day, um, mm-hmm. when you were still a sickle cell patient, you know, just as you are now with your patients, you wish that you'd been able to have a resource, someone to talk to, um, about what it looks like day to day. And I- I'm wondering what, a typical day looked like for you with that day to day when you were a patient versus now okay. and, and how you were balancing like the demands of work and life as you were working around potential symptoms and crises. Yes. Um, like now typical day is normal, but then, oh man, it was, 
it was definitely tough. I st- always started my mornings with medication, always started with medication. You know, generally I felt okay in the morning. Um, if anything, I knew I would probably have to take a painkiller along with me wherever I was going. I feel like my days were very pre-planned. I'm not, most people know I'm not a very spur of the moment person. And it's really because of this. It's about, because of sickle cells. I couldn't be spur of the moment. I had to be very prepared. Like I've gone to, you know, let's say Banff with friends and the plan was just to drive through, just to look around, maybe just to like grab a bite and, you know, but then all of a sudden it turns into, you know, people want to all of a sudden go climbing on the mountains. Like I didn't prepare for that. I haven't hydrated. I don't have my medication with me. This is, and like, I think there was one situation actually where I had gone somewhere like that with some family and the decision was that they wanted to go hiking and they said, let's go hiking. And then later on, we'll come home, have dinner, and then we'll go, you know, go to a party or something like that in the evening. And the thought of that was terrifying. I was like, that is a lot of stuff for me to do kind of, but you don't want to say no, (laughs) but at the same time, you know, it is, it is tough. It is tough. I just felt like you know, you don't want to be the party pooper. And I did feel sometimes my day-to-day life, I had to just stay very straight edge, stay with what I said I was going to do and what I've prepared to do. Um, But, you know, managing, I guess, when I was working full-time, I don't know how I was doing it. When I was working full-time with sickle cell disease, I do not know how I was doing it. Now I look back and I don't know what type of blessing was placed upon me. Because well, you were young and sense. running on adrenaline in some ways, I suppose. Yes. I guess it could have just been like this new nurse excitement that I was just experiencing. And I, and I also, I loved working in the NICU. I loved the babies. There's nothing better than to connect with like a new mom and baby and their family and be such like a, a big part of this birthing experience. Obviously we're not there for the actual birth, but just to know that a family trusts you enough to leave their child with you. Like, you know, that is just such a nice feeling and you just bond with some of these families so much. And so maybe it was just that I loved my work so much that I focused on that. Even though there were days that I didn't feel well and I would still be, people knew I was taking medication, but a lot of my coworkers, my coworkers had no idea I had sickle cell disease for a long time. I think my manager knew, obviously, because sometimes I would miss work and things. So I did tell her. But there was one occurrence where I ended up in hospital for an extended amount of time. And it was kind of like I was fine. And then I left work and I went straight to the emergency. And then people had found out that way. And they all were blown away. They're like, what? You have sickle cell? How did you? And because they're all nurses, they know exactly what it is. So they were very shocked that I've been experiencing this and living with this the entire time. You pushed through. And I think that's what it is. Sometimes with chronic illness, you just kind of teach yourself to keep going. I became an expert at hiding pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I definitely did. Like hiding was, yeah, easy for me. It was just kind of second nature. Mm. And it was just how I dealt with it. I'm like, well, I still want to go with my friends. And I know if I'm at home and my parents know I'm visibly in pain, they're not going to let me go hang out with my friends. Yeah. So you'll find a way to make it work kind of thing. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because you talk about people not knowing, right? That Mm -hmm. Because you were hiding pain and stuff. And I'm wondering whether you ever found yourself in a position where you had to justify the existence of your illness to other people who wouldn't believe it Mm -hmm. or didn't understand it because they couldn't see it. All of the time. Mm -hmm. I can't even 
think of how many times it's happened to me. It's just with sickle cell disease, you look totally fine. The only thing that might tip people off is sometimes we get a little bit of yellowing of the whites of our eyes um, just because of the red cells breaking down so frequently and it's being filled with bilirubin in your blood and it ends up in your eyes. But it, with that being said, even with that slight yellowing, people still don't notice really and truly. It's something you notice more. But I felt like I was constantly having to justify. And even in the medical system, that's where I found it the hardest. Like with my friends, fine. They would be frustrated like, oh, why can't you come? Oh, I don't feel well. But you look fine. And like, you know, they mm. just... And I they knew you had sickle cell, didn't they? Mm-hmm. But then yeah. like at that point... In junior high, what do you know? In in high school, what do you really understand? Even university, if you're not a medical professional, you can ask someone who is very knowledgeable, but they won't understand what it is. And so I did find it really hard. In the emergency was the hardest part for me, Um, just because... I you had to face it, didn't you? Yeah. You have to put on this show, to be honest. It sounds really bad, but... I did have to, like, you couldn't just go into emergency and just sit there regular and think that you're going to, they're going to take you seriously because they, they're like, you look totally fine. Yeah. My vitals might be off, but they're like, mm, she looks fine for the most part. And the issue with sickle cells is because we're request, we're in pain, we're requesting higher doses of pain medication than normal. And this is where the, the biggest issue lies is that you can't even you can't request what you need. They're going to try and give you Tylenol because they're like, sure. oh, well, we start everyone with Tylenol. But, like, but I mean, this, this brings different. up an interesting question too, though, of medical yes. bias, right? You know, yes. like, do you think because you're female, you were offered the Tylenol more because you're a woman mm-hmm. of color, you were offered it more that like people were less, yeah. less willing to believe that you were in pain? Because then of course we, we butt up against the opioid crisis, which, mm-hmm. you know, of mm-hmm. course we're going to try to avoid using addictive, highly addictive painkillers, but by the same token, yeah. those are the only ones that are going to work for you sometimes. So what did yes. that look like? Did you experience prejudice in the healthcare system? Do you think because of that? I, feel, I don't know. Like I honestly try my best to separate like race from everything. I try not to ever go that, oh, it's because Forgive of me for bringing race. it up then. No, no, no. I don't know. No problem. My, I have to poke the bear. <laughs> poke the bear. Poke him as much as you need to. No, I'm just, it's fine. But I honestly, I try my best to separate that. But I try not to let my mind go there because you can honestly find every situation that you're like, well, it's because of my race. But yeah. however- the issue is I know I experience prejudice due to my condition and mm. it, it's very tough because it's like, how do you separate the condition and the race? Because sickle cell is generally people of color who are affected. Yeah. So technically, yeah, it was racial prejudice because there isn't very much funding and poured into it either because mm-hmm. of potentially the people that it affects. And it could also be because the people who affect feel or who it affects feel shy about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to go out and do their own advocacy. But and that's not everyone's be- job. I mean, some of us find that we become advocates and some of us, our way of being is just to be. You don't always, you exactly. don't have to be exactly. an advocate because you have a chronic illness. Yeah, exactly. Just to be. And so I feel like it is very possible. Like, and we're just looked at like these drug seeking people, mm. drug seeking people. And so it's, it's hard. I think it did actually get harder as I got older. When I was younger, I don't remember ever having to do this whole put on a show thing. I remember always just getting great care. But I think as you um, transition into the adult world, where all of a sudden now you're like, oh, she's a 19-year-old like girl 
who looks just fine or you know maybe there's been times I've even showed up in the emergency in like outing clothes like that I would have just taken out I wasn't wearing my regular like sweatpants or whatever you can visibly see that I've come from somewhere Mm. and so then that also kind of raises an eyebrow as to does she really need these high dose of medication what is she really here for? so you had to kind of perform pain for them to take seriously Yes, because you can't just sit silently with pain. It's funny because that's actually how I dealt with pain. Like anyone in my family would tell you, they knew I was in pain when I was when I disappeared. I would disappear to my room and I'd just be in my bed crying very silently. I didn't want anybody but to know. This is so fascinating because it's the opposite end of the spectrum. So you were going yes. from hiding your pain to having to really perform it for mm. the doctors to take you seriously. So with friends and family mm-hmm. hiding the pain and in the emergency room having to put on a show of pain. Yes. And and for for people who are listening who don't have chronic illness to like mm-hmm. to understand what that does to your mental state as well and the stresses mm-hmm. that that can put upon your body that you're yes. living in these two very opposite worlds and not ever able to sort of just live in and of yourself. I mean it yes. distances you from yourself emotionally in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. I just feel like it was like you knew you had to turn on when the moment yeah. you get out of the car and you my sister or my mom or dad is pushing me in the emergent or pushing me in a wheelchair i just knew you had to be on from that moment you couldn't sit there and the thing is i'm someone i deal with pain really well i can be in pain but still smile with you mm-hmm. i can cuz i'm used to it i'm used to working and being in there's times i was at work in so much pain but yeah. i still like, joked around with my coworkers i still did my job and nobody knew and so mm-hmm. it's just like that idea of being able to just control how i felt inside and just put on this brave face i i had to just completely tear it down and just sit there you had to kind of be upset you had to show that you were in so much pain that you could barely sit up and it's like Oh, I could sit up if I wanted to sit up, but <laughs> it Absolutely. feels like you want me to look floppy. You want me to, and it's just interesting how people feel that pain has to look a certain way. That well, speaking people, of that, do you think that you would have had yeah. a different experience if you looked a different way? Like wh- whether it was like coming in looking ratty or mm-hmm. if you'd shown up as a white man with, mm-hmm. with pain, would you have been taken more seriously? You know, like, I, I just wonder, wonder about that. Yeah. I really do. Like if I had showed up and it's funny cause we always, I always felt like I needed to dress a certain way before going to the emergency. I had to look yep. semi put together. I didn't mm-hmm. want to just show up looking super raggedy looking ugh, like you had to be put together. And I'm like, why? Cause you don't want to look like a drug addict. Exactly. I'm like, why am I putting earrings on right now? <laughs> As like, yeah. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I should be. And also when you're going to the emergency room, who has time to stop and be like, let me just take care of my appearance right now. But like, that's what you had to do. <laughs> that's not like, oh, I don't want to wear that sweater. Let me put this sweater on. And like, it became this thing that I felt like, okay, you had to dress up for the emergency. And I really wonder that if potentially I looked differently is it, would they take my pain seriously? Um, and like, it even, it went to this point that they, our physicians actually developed a card, the sickle cell disease card, where it has um, all this emergent care and all the information they need to know. Cause half the time the physicians didn't even know in the emergency what to do. Um, and so this card, which that's bad, isn't it? Out. That like doctors in the emergency room weren't familiar enough with sickle cell disease to be able yes. to like spot it, treat it. Yeah. Yes. It's bad. That's scary. It's really bad. There were times my sister, I vividly remember, she would like go walk, kind of walk around the emergency. Like she's looking for where the physician is. She's like, she's been put into a room. Where's the physician? She's just kind of loitering. And she's seen physicians Googling 
Googling sickle cell. And I I remember coming back to the room and telling um, my family, we're all sitting there. We're like, what in the world? Like, and we come back and I'm like, seriously, oxygen, pain medication, fluids. That's all. Like it's really not that complicated, but so the sickle cell card was created by one of my physicians and it's just like a nice little roadmap. And it also, which I love them for doing, there's a spot where you can actually fill out the medication dose that your patient is currently needing for pain control. Because I can't go in there and say, oh, actually I'm taking Dilaudid of this milligram or this amount. They're going to be like, no, we're going to start you with Tylenol and work up. But then Mm -hmm. this would clearly state she needs, you know, morphine rather than this medication, this, this. And this is signed off on by your doctor as well. It sounds like, see, that's wonderful. I mean, the other thing is if you're on any kind of medication, having a list of your medications on you um, Mm -hmm. for situations like this is smart anyway, right? Especially for those of us with chronic illness, to be able yeah. to either like access a file that you could email to doctors or, you know, have something with you because who knows about, you know, yes. interactions with drugs you're on and all that kind of thing too, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother mm-hmm. can of worms. But that's, that's a really smart it, solution. It life saving, very helpful. And like it even sped up how long I would have to wait for because they saw it was serious. They understood and even outlined on the card. I think it's like a Canada wide thing that one of the physicians had created and just kind of distributed it. Then everyone can use it and tailor it maybe to the patients that they needed to, but it was honestly lovely. (laughs) That's really wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of, I mean, that's a great tip. And I'm wondering if you can also offer your top three tips for someone who maybe suspects they've got something off. Maybe they're living with sickle cell and they're not sure what the way forward is going to look like. What are your top three tips for people who are living with chronic invisible illness? Okay. The first one I'd have to say is trust yourself. Yes, because you know what you feel and you know when something's off. That's like my biggest thing because before transplant and after transplant, I've experienced countless situations where maybe a symptom or a side effect, something I was experiencing wasn't believed, but I had to trust myself and trust that, no, this is wrong. Sorry, I'm going to continue like this is wrong and be very strong in what you know kind of Mm, thing. Absolutely. Um, I like that. That one was really, really helpful. Also, I would say um, to educate yourself. You know, I'm big on education. Absolutely. (laughs) Understand your condition. Like you need to know what helps or what hurts your condition. You know, and if nothing, you're at the point where nothing's actually diagnosed, you should be tracking your symptoms. Don't just say, oh, you know, a few times a month I have this. No, find a calendar, find a chart and like make it a pain diary, make it a symptom journal, something like that. So when you go to your doctor's office, you can be like, here, this is all the funny things that have been happening. And what are we going to do about it? Rather than going and kind of being a little wishy-washy, you're not 100% sure how long the pain lasts for you're not 100% sure this at least gives you concrete um, information. That's what I did post transplant is I I documented every single day. I made a giant tick chart with every single symptom I could potentially have. I even wrote down how many steps I took that day because I had I was wearing my Fitbit just so that if any anything happened from noticing a rash enlarging to having a certain pain after starting a medication, everything was documented. So when I went to my physician, because you get to a point where only you're seeing your physician once a week. So for the whole week, I could tell you, actually, on this day, this day, and this day, after you change this medication, this is what happened. And it's, it just makes it mm-hmm. easier for yourself. And it 
gives you a little bit more credibility as well. It gives you actual um, usable data you can hand to a doctor who is essentially a scientist and needs the data. Yeah, exactly. You need, they need the data to process sometimes what you're saying. Um, and the last thing I think I would tell someone is to advocate for yourself. Um, and advocating for yourself can look however you want it to look. It doesn't have to be getting on social media. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be writing to your legislature or anything like that. But really and truly, it can just be that when you do not get the right answer and answer an outcome that you feel comfortable with, keep pushing. Look for a second opinion if you can. You know what I mean? Um, do, do whatever you can to keep moving whatever vision you have for it. And that's why it's important to educate yourself because if you don't know what you're advocating for, it makes things a little bit tough. Yeah, absolutely. My top three. I love that. Last top three list I have for you. Last top three list. Yeah, we've got one more. I've got two top three lists. I should have three top three lists, but I've only got two. (laughs) Um, And the last thing is, I'm wondering what the top three things are in your life that give you unbridled joy. So things that even perhaps while you were living with sickle cell, you were unwilling to compromise on. Um, These can be three things that maybe they're guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, Um, but three things that make you super super happy that you will turn to when you need a moment of joy? Okay. Well, number one, first and foremost, nieces and nephews. Oh my goodness. I love those little people. <laughs> There's literally no one better than nieces That's and lovely. nephews. Well, you obviously have a love of children too because of your yes. work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Honestly, I'm obsessed. I am obsessed. I, they brighten my day like mm-hmm. never before. And I, I know that they were what kept me going through transplant. That was like the thing that I kept holding on to. That was like, I need to get better for these guys. Like, who's going to take them sledding and tobogganing? Who's <laughs> that's how what like yeah. had to kind of the dialogue. I had to continually play through my mind to get me through like the toughest times. And I know even though I was having a bad day, just mentally, I was physically fine, but just mentally not having a good day. Mm. There's nothing better than a crazy child laughing. Like you know when kids like are running around and they they get exhausted, but they're still laughing. It's yeah. like this laugh that is like hysterical that it just gets me. It will, whatever you're experiencing, it's gone. Yeah, it's, gone it's true joy. Mm-hmm. So definitely hanging yeah. out with my nieces and nephews, as well as um, spending time with family. That mm-hmm. that all kind of ties into one. I love my family; they're lots of fun, especially the the little ones in the family. <laughs> but my second would be this is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> definitely a guilty pleasure. I love like reality slash trash TV. Thank you. Oh, That's really God. what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is amazing. Yeah. And when you've lived, when you've lived with chronic illness, you spend a lot of time binging TV. So reality TV is very handy for that because there's endless amounts of it. Endless amounts. And it's just like mindless drama. Like, why Mm -hmm. are you fighting? But I just love it. Yeah. Love it. And it's kind of nice to like turn your mind off and just see Mm -hmm. inside of someone else's life for a little bit. And see that maybe Um, sometimes they have it worse. (laughs) Things are not easy for other people. Yeah. So I definitely love my fair share of reality TV. And I honestly, anything, anything reality, I watch. Love it. Love it. (laughs) The more drama, the better. You know, I love those ones. And I think the last one would be just being creative. Mm -hmm. I just love like, um, well, one thing I'm really, really interested in is natural products. I love to create my own Mm -hmm. natural products. 
it's something that post-transplant I kind of started to explore more. I just got to this point where I felt like I was taking probably about 15 medications a day. I just had the chemotherapy and radio radiation we spoke about, mm. but uh, I just felt like I was being pumped with toxins. Sure. And just so many toxins throughout my whole life of just being on medications. And when I was finally at a point where I said, no, I don't want to mm. do this anymore. And I started learning more and understanding and re- researching about what the products that we use really have in them in terms of like anything from cleaning products to skincare, like body. It's wild. Yeah, <laughs> and so it just kind of sparked my interest into, <clears throat> sorry, into this new yeah. world. I love it. Mm. Yeah. And so in my spare time, I create lots of, I love that you do that. And it's like interesting that. that you do that. You're a nurse, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and yet you also see the benefit in taking a step back with some of these easy solutions, maybe, yes. you know, that like, instead of buying the spray from the drugstore, maybe like making an apple cider vinegar spray or something might be the better, safer way to go, not just for you, but for everyone else in your household, for your plants, for your pets, um, that a lot of these toxins can contribute to disease. So if you cut down on them, yes, that's exactly where it came from. That was like, okay, what can I cut out? That's going to reduce my risk of getting, maybe it's also my paranoia of getting another chronic illness. Sure. (laughs) But it's also maintaining health, isn't it? It's like, Mm -hmm. you've got health now. And yes. so you are, you want to do everything that's in your power to yes. stay healthy. Exactly that. I'm like, mm-hmm. this body is a temple. I really yeah. and truly feel like God has given me a second like lease on life. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not going to waste this. I will not waste it. I'm going to do whatever I can to preserve it and prolong it the best I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these natural products have kind of opened uh, a gateway in a way that I can kind of do that. I've tried to get my family on it. I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> but yeah. once they the product, they realize it works. They're like, yeah. oh wow. Okay, totally. I will transition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Reve, can you tell everyone where they can find you and your work online? Oh yes, yes, definitely. So you can find me online at my sickle cells. And so I'm pretty much on YouTube. You can find me there. You can also find me on Instagram. It's also my sickle cells. And then I do have a website as well as my sickledcells.wordpress.com. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about my story, that is definitely the place to be. I've kind of broken it down a little bit more. All of my different, um, I guess, interviews I've done or any speaking engagements or articles about me will all be kind of harbored there. Um, and eventually in the future, in the future, future, as things progress, I would love to sell my natural products on there. That's the, that's oh, yeah, the that'd be wonderful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but what yeah. a story behind them too. So that's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, Reve, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I mean, such an honor to be able to give you a platform to talk more about your story. I'm so glad that we connected and I yes. really look forward to watching the rest of your health journey as it continues to unfold. We'll be keeping an eye on you. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.